tonight we're going to try to see what we can find out in 1 Timothy. We're going to go through the book of 1 Timothy. You still reading 1 Timothy? All right, good job. And we're going to start out in chapter 1, but here's what I want to do before we get started. Can anybody in here tell me something about the book of Burke, the book of 1 Timothy? Paul wrote it. Who was? Timothy. Okay. All right, we got Paul as the author, wrote it to Timothy. Timothy's the leader of a church. See, he's got a head start. He's been reading it on his own. Good idea. Yeah, there we go. Anybody else? Anybody got anything else? Yes. Yes, the book of Timothy does talk about deacons. Talks about lust in chapter 6. Okay, all right. Talks about how to be a good servant. Okay, that's what you said. All right. These are eight. Hey, these are all good things. And you know what? There, there are a lot of things, and we're going to touch on what y'all talked about. And there's even more in here that, that you guys haven't looked up on your phones yet or looked up in your Bibles yet to give me an answer. Yeah, yeah, you're looking it up. You're doing good. But here's, here's, let's cover some basics of the book of 1 Timothy before we get too far. As Justin stated, who was it written by? Paul. Yes. Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy. Does anybody have any idea of when it might have been written? Yes, after Christ died. Good call. What's that? Yeah, anytime. It's, it's thought to be anywhere in between the period of 62 to 66 A.D. Any, sometime in that four-year period is when they think it was right. Does anybody know where they think Paul was when he wrote this letter? What? Prison? What? Matt, hey, guys, y'all can't even hear Kevin giving the right answer. Kevin has the right answer about a Bible question. Isn't that good? What is it? Macedonia, yes. And this, this is the first of how many pastoral letters or epistles, as they call it? How many? Three. Okay, so now we have some basics. Paul wrote it. It was written between 62 and 66 A.D., sometime in that four-year span. Paul wrote it in Macedonia, and it's the first of three pastoral letters. Okay, so we got the basics covered. Are you good there? So when I ask you next week, you can tell me at least two of those four things. Okay, hint, I'm going to ask you next week, you should be able to tell me two of those four things that I just went through with you. Okay, it's not that hard. And yes, if you were listening, you heard Justin. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy because Timothy is a young pastor. And Timothy is a pastor in the church at Ephesus. And just like in any church, every once in a while, the pastor needs a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of a reminder of why he's doing what he's doing. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here with Timothy. He's writing to encourage him. And we're, we're going to get into who Timothy is in a minute here. But he's writing to this young man just to lift him up and say, hey, you know what? You're doing the right thing. Now we need to talk about some things you need to address in your church. But before we get too far into that, let's start in verse 1. And let's look at who Paul is. Let's look at what he addresses to Timothy. It says in 1 Timothy 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now notice how Paul identifies himself here. What does he call himself? What? An apostle. Do you know the other place that is used in Scripture, who that refers to? No. The disciples. 
If you read through the New Testament and you look specifically in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, that is the same phrase or the same term that Christ uses for the disciples. It actually comes from the Greek word apostolos. And what that means is one on a mission. You see, what Paul is saying right here is he's saying, okay, I encountered Jesus Christ way back in Acts chapter 9 before he wrote this letter. He encountered Jesus Christ face to face just like the disciples did. He met Jesus just like the disciples did. Jesus talked to him just like he talked to the disciples. And what it actually talks about, if you read one of, other, one of, other, one of Paul's other letters, I'm getting too fast tonight, he calls himself an apostle untimely born. What Paul's doing here is he's putting himself in that same group as the disciples. These guys that walked, talked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, watched him do his miracles, were sent out by Jesus. Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm one of these guys. His mission, his commission, his command from Christ is just as important as what Christ told the other disciples to do. That's where Paul sees himself. And that's why he says there at the end of verse 1, he says, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. He's reminding Timothy, I'm telling you these things, but you need to remember who I am. I'm someone that's been given authority by Jesus Christ, by God himself, to do what we're doing, and I'm giving this to you. And then he goes on to address Timothy in verse 2. Look what he says. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me give you a little background on Timothy. Because Timothy is a young pastor here. And the first time you see Timothy is all the way back in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on his missionary journeys and he comes to this church in Acts chapter 16 verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, or they, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You see, Paul's traveling around. He's on his second missionary journey, and he comes to this place called Lystra, and he encounters this, this young guy, this Timothy. They think he was probably around 16, 17 years old at the time. And he was so impressed with this teenager that he decides he's going to take him on his missionary journey with him. That would be like somebody showing up at our church, a missionary, somebody that's been going overseas, and they are so impressed with one of you that they go to your parents and say, hey, this, this, is, a, this is a young man, this is a young woman of God. They are doing it. They are a disciple. They are on fire. I want to take them back with me. You see that happening? Yeah, some of y'all are like, no, <laughs> there's no way that's going to happen. But you see, at 16, 17 years old, that's how serious Timothy was about his faith. Now, we think about a lot of times, you know what, I'm going to be a missionary one day. You know, when I get married or when I have a family, when I graduate college, I'm going to go off and I'm going to do all these things for God when we don't have to wait for one day. Right now. You guys, the age you are, the place you are, there's no reason you can't be doing great things for God. And some of you are. Some of you are doing some incredible things, reaching out to your friends, talking to people about Christ, finding ways to share the gospel. That's where Timothy was. 
And Paul comes in and sees him and says, okay, this guy's got to go with me. But before he goes, there's a little issue they've got to take care of. You see, it talks about how Timothy's dad was Greek, Timothy's mom was Jewish. And I, I was reading those verses, I'm thinking, okay, why would Paul have to take this teenager to be circumcised before he could go on missionary journeys? But you see, the reason is, as I did a little more reading, what I found out is because his father was Greek, he would, have, he would have been considered Greek by one community. Because his mother was Jewish, he would have been considered Jewish by the Jewish community. But you see, it was Jewish tradition for men to be circumcised. It was not Greek tradition. Now, Paul, most of the time on his missionary journeys, if he went into a town where Jewish people were and there was a synagogue, that is where he would start. He would go to the synagogue and he would preach. And the problem is, if Jewish tradition is for these men to be circumcised, for Paul to show up with a young man that wasn't, that's going to cause a problem for his ministry. They've got to have him following this Jewish tradition. In fact, it reflects what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, here's what Paul says in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win the Jews. That's what's going on here. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though being myself, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, Paul understood in order to take this missionary journey and to take this young man with him, this young man had to do something a little bit different in order to effectively minister to the people that they were going to try and reach. To the Gentiles, wouldn't have been a big deal. But if Paul is starting in the synagogues and he's starting with the Jewish people every time, that's got to be addressed. Did he have to address that? No, he didn't have to, but it would have hurt his ministry. What that's basically saying, guys, is there's going to be times where you might have to give something up. You might have to do something that you wouldn't normally do. You might have to step out of a comfort zone that you don't want to step out of just to take the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Now, Lord willing... Guys, that won't be the case. It'll be something much simpler. But that may be, that things may be required of us. Don't let that be a reason not to go. Think about Timothy. If Timothy had not gone on that journey, Timothy would not be where he is now. He would not be in a completely different town, a completely different church, and he would not be the pastor of that church with Paul writing to him. Don't miss out on an opportunity just because it requires a little bit of sacrifice. Timothy didn't, and because he didn't, he's exactly where God wants him, and he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. And Paul jumps into verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1, and he starts addressing him a little bit. He's introduced himself. He said who he's writing to. He calls him my sincere son in the faith. You see, Paul has spent some time on this missionary journeys discipling this young man. He has invested in him. He's taken the model that Jesus Christ showed us with the disciples, where Jesus spent time, Jesus taught them, Jesus showed them how to carry out the gospel, and then Jesus said, go do it. 
He's done the same thing with Timothy. He's followed that same model. And now Timothy is this pastor. And Paul is writing to him to encourage him. And he jumps right into that in verse 3. The first thing he encourages Paul or Timothy about is to stay on task. Let's, let's read it to you. Let's see what it says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Remain there. Don't leave. Don't go anywhere. Don't do, don't do anything stupid. Stay right there. Stay with what you're doing. You see, after greeting Timothy, he jumps right into here to remind him he is exactly where he's supposed to be. Timothy, for whatever reason, as you, as you, as you follow the different spots in Scripture where he shows up, for whatever reason, God has brought him here. He's brought him to Ephesus, and he's brought him here for a purpose. And Paul is telling him in that short little phrase, remain at Ephesus. He's saying, stay where you are because that is where God wants you. You are doing what God has called you to do, and you're doing it where God's called you to do it. He's encouraging Timothy. And I think sometimes we all need a little bit of that. I know there's times where we might start thinking, okay, God, I'm not really seeing you use me too much where you've got me right now. Or we may wish we were at a different school so we could be a, a better influence for Christ. Or we may wish that, that sometimes maybe we were in a different family, maybe a family that liked to go to church or, or that loved Jesus. But you know what? You are where you are. You are with the people you are with, the group of friends, the family, because that's where Jesus wants you. Because that's where God has put you. And he's put you there for a task. And when the day comes that that task is complete, guess what? You won't be in that situation anymore. You see, Paul is encouraging Timothy. And I want to encourage you tonight, if that's your thought, you say, okay, God, I don't, I don't see what you're doing here. I don't understand why I'm in this situation. I don't understand why I'm around these people. I just want to encourage you, stay on task. If you're there, God's got you there for a reason. Look for it. Look for the people that he wants you to influence. Look for the situations that he wants to give you to speak up and to talk about who Jesus Christ is and the difference he's made in your life and what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And if you are doing anything besides looking at Scripture on your phone, I'm going to ask you right now, stop. Thank you. But be encouraged by the fact that God has got you where he wants you and he's got you there for a reason. That is what he's telling Timothy because the truth is, Timothy's got some tough stuff to deal with. We're getting ready to jump in the next couple verses. And as you're going to see, there's some problems in this church that Timothy is the pastor of. Now understand this. There are going to be problems in any church you go to. You see them here. You can see them in our church, at North Florida Baptist Church today. You can see them at every church in Tallahassee, in this state, in this country, in this world. There are going to be problems. And the reason that is, is because the church is full of us, sinners. We may be forgiven, we may be redeemed, but we're still sinners. And we bring issues, we bring conflict. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, yeah, all that's going on, but stay where you are because God's got you there for a reason. And as he jumps into verse 4, or excuse me, the last half of verse 3, the beginning of verse 4, He's telling Timothy, okay, I want you to stay on task and I want you to focus on the truth. Look at, look at what Timothy's facing here in, in the second part of verse 3. <coughs> Timothy, 
tells them so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Here we go. First problem right here. We don't know all of them, but evidently in this church, one of the issues they were facing is that there were some people coming in and they were trying to teach different doctrine than what Timothy was teaching as the pastor of that church. Now, if you, if you don't understand or don't know what that word doctrine means, that means the core beliefs that we hold as a church. That when we look at Scripture, what Scripture says about the fact that it is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. The fact that we serve God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are the Trinity, who are three in one, even though it's so hard to wrap our minds around what that means. The basic tenets of what our faith are, that is the doctrine that Paul is talking to Timothy about. And he's saying, you guys need to be careful because there are people coming in and they are teaching doctrine other than what you know to be true. And he's telling Timothy, you need to focus on the truth. Because if you've got these people coming in, if you've got these people teaching other things than what you know to be true and these things that are contradictory to Scripture, it's going to cause a problem. It's going to cause a big problem. Now, this happened then and it happens now. If you look around today, you will see preachers. You will hear preachers, if you listen, who sound like they are right on track with what the Bible's saying. But if you actually start digging into some of their messages and start digging into some of the things you're learning from their scripture or from the scripture they're sharing, you start to find out that it's a little off. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out and start looking for it, running everybody down, calling everybody a heretic. If you don't know what that means, that means somebody who takes and twists scripture for their own reasons. But you're going to see it if you open your eyes. One that I came across recently, and some of you guys may know who this pastor is because he's very famous, written a lot of books, is a guy named Joel Osteen. You're probably familiar with the name. But see, recently, I was walking through the bookstore, and he's always got a bestseller. So I stopped and picked up his latest bestseller, and it was called, uh, let, me, let me read the title, I Declare 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. And I want to read you what the back of that book jacket said. This, this is his description of his book. It says, our words have creative power. Whenever we speak something, either good or bad, we give life to what we are saying. Too many people say negative things about themselves, about their families, and about their futures. Sounds about right so far, right? They say things such as, I'll never be successful. This sickness will get the best of me. Business is so slow, I don't think I'll make it. Flu season is coming, I'll probably catch it. They don't realize they are prophesying their own futures. The scripture says we will eat the fruit of our words. That means we will get exactly what we've been saying. Here's the key. You've got to send your words out in the direction you want your life to go. You cannot talk defeat and expect to have victory. You can't talk lack and expect to have abundance. You will produce what you say. If you want to know what you will be like in five years from now, just listen to what you're saying about yourself. With our words, we can either bless our futures or we can curse our futures. I've written this book of 31 declarations so you can bless your future one day at a time, one month at a time. 
My hope is that you will take just a moment each day to bless your future with one of these positive, inspiring, and encouraging declarations. If you will read one declaration each day and speak it over your life, I believe you will see God's favor and blessing in a greater way. That sounds great, doesn't it? I can quote scripture, one verse a day, one blessing a day, and because I do that, God's going to bless my life. But you know what? I don't find that in Scripture. In fact, when we look at Scripture and we start reading and and look up all the instances where God talks about blessings, it talks about how we can be a blessing to God through our actions and through our words and the way we live out our faith. But it also talks about the fact that God is the one that bestows all blessings. That just because I speak something and I want it to be true and I try to will it to be true and I think, okay, I'm going to be blessed because I said this, That's not what Scripture teaches. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't dislike Joel Osteen. And I believe that the man does have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I believe he has been redeemed. But I also believe there's some stuff in there that's a little twisted. He also preaches what's called the health and wealth gospel, which basically says if you follow Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you live your life accordingly, Christ wants you to be happy. Christ wants you to be healthy, and he'll take care of everything. And he will, but you're never promised happiness. You're never promised health when it comes to this earth. We're not guaranteed that. If you guys remember, not too long ago, I showed you a video of a young man that I knew in Sarasota who was on fire for Christ and got leukemia and two years later passed away. Well, the health and wealth gospel tells me that shouldn't happen the reality of Scripture tells me it's going to. That's why James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because you will as someone who follows Christ. We've got to watch out for those things. We've got to focus on the truth, because when we are focused on the truth, we can catch those instances. We can catch those little nuances that aren't quite what Scripture says, even though it sounds really good. You know, people will tell you all the time, well, money is the root of all evil. No. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. See? A little bit of word difference. A little bit of change, and it completely changes the meaning of what Scripture says. But you see, for us to focus on the truth, for us to know when someone is taking Scripture and twisting it, that means we have to know what Scripture says. That means we have to spend time in God's Word. That means we have to have meditated on it and memorized it and hidden it in our hearts the way Scripture talks about it so that we know what the, what the truth says. And when we know what it says, we won't get caught off guard the way he's talking about some people are getting caught off guard here. But he not only talks about false doctrine, he talks about, uh, what does he call it? He says myths and genealogies. Now, is there anything wrong with somebody thinking, that Bigfoot really exists. No? Does anybody here think Bigfoot really exists? I should have known you were going to. You saw the cave. Okay. Okay, you saw the cave at Snowbird. Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. Now, see? Guys, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Myths. What's that? I'm positive. We're getting to that. Exactly. There's a, hey, how many of you want to know your ancestry? You want to know where you come from? Your parents, your grand, yes, ancestry.com, 24.99. Yeah. 
<coughs> it works for some people, doesn't work for others. Hey guys, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know those things. There's not. Where the issue comes in is the one word that Paul uses in verse 4. And it's the word devote. It says you have people that are devoting themselves to genealogies and to myths. To devote yourself to something means you are all in. That is what you are all about. Even sometimes to the expense of anything else that might be important in your life, you are devoted to that cause. And he's saying, you've got people in the church, these people are coming in and teaching false doctrine. You've also got these people that are coming in and they are devoted to these myths. That is their goal. That is their focus. So they're devoted to these genealogies about where they came from and who was there before them. And the problem is that's taken their focus off of God. They've so devoted themselves to those things that they're no longer focused on the truth. And when we're not focused on the truth, we're easily tripped up. You see, God made us curious. God made us inquisitive. He made us with the ability to look at things, to reason things out, to find answers. We reflect His image in those qualities. But just like anything else, we can take what He intended for a good thing and twist it. And that's what's going on here. These people, they're going off and they're looking at these other things and they're forgetting what their goal is supposed to be. And Paul tells Timothy in verse 5 exactly what that goal is. He says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The goal, the purpose, the task of what we do as people who follow Christ is love. We talked about it last week. It's to love God and to love others. But you see, there's an issue with the things that he named there. Because when it talks about this love, this true love that comes from Jesus Christ, you and I are not capable of that on our own. Look at the three things he says this love issues from. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's look at those three real quick. For instance, a pure heart. How many of you in here think you have a pure heart? It means pure, spotless, sinless, nothing wrong. You're absolutely right. You see, Scripture tells us in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the first thing it tells me that love is supposed to come from a pure heart, but it tells me my heart in Scripture can never be pure, at least not by my doing. You see, the only way we get a pure heart, the only way we get that spotless, blameless, guiltless heart is by the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, by His death and His resurrection. So that love, you and I aren't capable of doing that from a pure heart apart from Jesus Christ. What about the next one? Clear conscience. Anybody here got a clear conscience? Nobody? Wow, y'all are some guilty people, aren't you? Yeah. What's that? You're truthful. That's good. Be truthful. I'd rather have a room full of truthful, guilty people than a bunch of happy liars any day. Absolutely. Here's what Scripture says. A clear conscience is one is that, that is devoid of guilt. You have nothing to feel guilty about. But you see, Scripture again tells us that's not us. 
You see, it tells us in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty before God because of sins that we commit every single day. Even after we ask for Christ's forgiveness, we're still guilty for the sins we commit every day. Now, Christ has taken the penalty for that guilt. Christ has washed away that. But we still commit sins, don't we? We still feel guilty, even though we're not held accountable for it, because Christ has paid that price. So love from a clear conscience, I can't do it. I'm impressed if you can. So that's two, two down. What about the third one? A sincere faith. How many of you think you have a sincere faith? I hope all of you do. But you know what? My prayer is that every single one of you has a sincere faith. But you still can't do that apart from Christ. The faith that you have, it's not because of you. It's because God has called you to himself. It's because God has opened your eyes to the gospel and your need for Jesus Christ. A sincere faith looks like this. It says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. How many of you do that every single day? I don't. And I can't apart from Christ. See, I believe you have a sincere faith. But I also believe from what Scripture tells us, what it's talking about right there in Proverbs, those things it tells us to do, if I'm relying on myself, then my faith is not sincere. And that's something I struggle with on a daily basis. Because I like to think I'm pretty smart. Sometimes I think I'm pretty talented. And I can get a lot done in a day if I put my mind to it. But if I'm relying on me, at the end of the day, yes, I got a lot of stuff done. But did I do what God wanted me to do that day? You see, apart from God, apart from Christ, this love that he's talking about, this, this clear conscience, this pure heart, this sincere faith, we're not capable of that apart from him. But when we know him, it's incredible what we're capable of. When we've experienced the love that he expressed to us, number one, by creating us. Number two, by sending his son to die for us. Number three, by his son coming back to life to pay the penalty to show us that we can know him and have a relationship with him. That's the love he's talking about. And that's the love we can experience. And that's in turn the love that we're called to turn around and to show to other people. That's what he's talking to Timothy about. He's saying this is our aim. This is our goal. Even when you don't feel like loving other people, if you follow Christ, you have the ability to show them his love, whether you like him or not. That's our aim. You see, he's reminding Timothy of some really, really important stuff here. But he also tells him in the next couple verses, when that's not our aim, when that's not our goal, you start to see what you see in verse 6 and 7. Look at what it says. Certain persons, by swerving from these, by swerving from these three things, by swerving from this clear doctrine, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, he used an interesting word here. He says swerving. A lot of times when we think of swerving, we think of driving. Something's in our way. Something's run out in front of us, and we're going to swerve the car to miss it. Some of you are already driving. Some of you will be driving soon. Please swerve to miss things in the middle of the road. Swerve to miss animals. Swerve to miss people, little children. If a tree pops up in front of you, swerve to miss the tree. Okay? It can happen. I've heard people say the tree just came out of nowhere. Unless you have a brush guard. No, still swerve. Okay? But you know what? If you swerve in a car a little too much, you can lose control. You can go off the road. You can overcorrect and you can hurt yourself. That's the way Paul's using this word here. That's how he's using this term. He's saying, you've got these people, they have gotten so sidetracked, they have taken their focus off the truth and gotten so sidetracked by these genealogies and these myths and these false doctrine and taken their eyes off of the love of God that they're going all over the place. That they're going to hurt themselves and they're going to hurt other people. When you have people that take their focus off God and focus it on something else, at some point in time, that focus is going to start drawing other people to whatever that is. Because you're going to influence people. That's why it's so important that we focus on the truth of God and what His Word says about Him. Because if we don't, we're going to start paying attention to other things. And as we do that, we're going to start sharing those things with people. And as we start sharing those things with people, other people are going to start focusing on those things. And all of a sudden, now it's not just us. We're responsible for taking other people's attention off of God. And that's not a place we want to be. He says, focus your attention. Pay attention because when you don't, you're going to get yourself in a spot that you don't want to be in. And then he, then he goes on to talk about the people that, that want to teach the law. These people that have taken their focus off God and they think they know what they're saying, but the reality is they don't know what they're saying at all. Have you all ever seen anybody do this before? Maybe a teacher or maybe somebody on TV, they get up and start talking and they're supposed to be the person that knows exactly what's going on and know the right thing to say and they don't make any sense at all. Let me show you an example of that. Mr. Billy, can you play that video? Yes. Go ahead and hit play right here. Right there. Bring it right down. Right there. We propose to show a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have that. And uh, I believe that our education, like such as South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere I like such as, and I believe that they should, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or, or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for us. Thank you very much, South Carolina. Okay, now... Let me ask. She would, okay, wait, hold on now. Hold on. Don't, don't start throwing out the blonde card. I'm going to take issue with that one. 
But you know what? Her, hey, her job, her job was to prepare as part of that pageant a couple years ago was to prepare and be ready to answer questions like that to sound like she knew what she was talking about. And I'm sad, but she sounded like an idiot. She didn't know what she was talking about. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. They had people in this church who were wanting the position of teachers. People who were declaring things about the law. And they had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. In fact, Paul goes on to remind Timothy what the law talks about. In verse 8, here's what he says. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He said, this is what the law is for. The law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament is what he's referring to. It's like a mirror for us. When we look at the law, when we look at the expectation where God wants us to be, and then look at our own lives and see where we actually are most of the time, the law shows us what sinners we are. The law shows us how desperately we need Christ. And he's saying people are standing up and they're talking about the law and they are not focusing on these things. You see, the law shows us just like a mirror. When we stand in front of a mirror, we do it so we can look at ourselves and we can know if we need to fix something to make it look the way we want it to look. When we look at Scripture, it's like holding up a, holding up a mirror to who we are, to our sin, to ourself, to our soul. And if we look at it and we really look at it, we're going to see that we're broken, that we need to be fixed. Only the problem is the difference between Scripture and a regular mirror is we can fix ourselves in a regular mirror. When it comes to Scripture and what we see there, we can't fix it. That's why Jesus is necessary. Because we can't fix the fact that we're sinners. We can't fix the fact that we're broken and we can't do anything about it. That is why Jesus Christ is so necessary. And that's why he tells him in this last verse that we're going to look at tonight of 1 Timothy, verse 11. It says, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, we can't fix our brokenness, but God can through Jesus Christ. If the law reveals our sin, then it is Jesus Christ who solves our sin problem. In fact, Jesus talks about who he is in relation to the law in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Paul finishes out this first section talking about the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ with which he has been entrusted. And if we say we believe in God, if we say we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then that assumes that the Holy Spirit lives within us and is working in our life. That assumes that we are spending time in His Word so that we can focus on what the truth is so that when we see things contrary, we know and the alarms start going off. And it reminds us 
that no matter where he has put us, no matter where he has called us, that we are to stay on task because that's where he wants us at that time. So my question for you, are you focusing on the truth tonight? In your relationships, in your home, on the ball field, in the band, wherever it is you spend all your time, are you focusing on the truth? Is that playing out in your life? Are you staying on task? If God has put you where you are right now for a purpose, are you on task? Are you looking for those areas that he wants you to do something? He wants you to say something. He wants you to maybe sometimes just act different than everybody else is acting. I want to encourage you. Do those two things. Be where God has planted you and stay on task and focus on the truth. Spend time in his word. I challenged you guys two Wednesday nights ago. Read the book of John, 21 chapters. How you doing? How are you doing on that? Are you focusing on the truth? Get into his word every single day because as you do that, it's going to be a lot easier to stay on task. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. God, I thank you for, for what we see here in First Timothy, and, and there's going to be a whole lot more that we see as we go through this book. But God, you have shown us love. You have shown us what it is you want from us. And God, all it requires is for us to focus on you. Lord, I pray that we will do that, that everybody in this room tonight will do that. We'll focus on the truth of who you are. Help us to know when we see things that aren't in your word. Help us to know when we see opportunities to speak up and share Christ with somebody. I want to tell you right now, if you're here tonight and it's hard for you to stay on task and focus on the truth because you don't have a relationship with Christ, when the music starts playing, stand up with everybody else. Walk to the back of the room and come talk to myself or talk to Miss Kathleen back here. Let us show you what that relationship looks like. Let us show you how much God loves you in his word. And if you just got a prayer request, write it down on that green card. Come up here and just set it on the front of the stage. And we will pray for you. God hears every single prayer. God, we love you and we thank you for the way that you bless us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.